Welcome to this special limited series about Israeli settlements in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation's Israel office. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, and we will be exploring the historic evolution and current status of Israeli settlements and potential future developments. Each episode represents a different aspect, and today we'll be discussing the most recent developments to try to get a full picture of the settlement project as it looks today and understand how we got here over the last decade or 20 years. This is sort of an audio snapshot of what's happening on the ground at the moment that Israel is considering annexing settlements. And there's no one more knowledgeable to give us this snapshot than my guest today. Chagit Ofran has worked for many years at the Settlement Watch project of the Israeli peace movement called Peace Now, which provides information to Israeli politicians, diplomats, international media, and the Israeli public. She's widely recognized as one of Israel's foremost experts on a range of issues related to West Bank settlements in East Jerusalem. Chagit's work includes traveling daily throughout the West Bank, examining aerial photographs, browsing through Israeli official documents, and she has formerly worked for the Geneva Initiative. She was Yossi Balin's personal assistant when he was Minister of Justice, and we're speaking to her today from Jerusalem. Chagit Ofran, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I want to start with the snapshot that I promised. Let's try to get the most current picture of the settlements that we can based on some data, rough data. How many settlements are there? And then we'll talk about changes in the last, let's say, decade, what kind of growth we've seen. In the West Bank, there are approximately 250 entities of settlements, official settlements and non-official settlements, in which there are 430,000 Israelis, in addition to another more than 200,000 Israelis in East Jerusalem. And what have been the changes over the last decade? And I'm asking about the last decade, not so much to pin it on Netanyahu, but because it is a good sort of turning point to think about, especially if Netanyahu becomes the one who annexes. But what have we seen over that decade? What kind of growth? The growth in general in settlements is uh, more or less constant. It's uh, around three and a half to four percent a year of the growth of population in number of settlers, as opposed to around a little less than two percent in the Israeli population. It means that the settlements are growing a little faster than in Israel. What we've seen specifically in the last decade is more construction which is deeper in the West Bank. As opposed to the main trends that we saw before, most of the construction used to be closer to the Green Line in uh, the cities, in uh, what we call uh, quality of life settlements. Why do we call them that? Explain what that means. Because there are different kinds of settlers in general. There are those who go to the settlements because of ideological motivation, mainly religious motivation. And there are those who go to the settlements because they are looking for better quality of life or cheaper housing that is not affordable inside the Green Line. So they are going to the West Bank. Why is it more affordable over the Green Line in the West Bank, even for those quality of life people? Throughout the history, Israeli governments encouraged people to move to settlements through a row of incentives that uh, had to do with uh, taxation, with services, and with um, infrastructure that was available there and 
made things cheaper. Okay. So we have people who've moved out there. This is a growth rate that's bigger than the growth rate for the Israeli public uh, in general. Uh, what is the significance of those different locations that you mentioned? For people who don't know, what does it matter where in the West Bank people settle, whether it's close to the Green Line or deeper inside the West Bank to the east? Our conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, should be resolved in some kind of a two-states arrangement. And if we're talking about a border between two states, then we need to have room for a Palestinian state side by side with Israel. And if Israel is filling or filling in all the West Bank with Israeli settlements, then you won't have enough territory for a viable Palestinian state. So that's the problem with putting in the West Bank settlements. However, if the settlements are relatively closer to the Green Line and they are not creating a huge breakup to the territorial continuity of a Palestinian state, then maybe we can negotiate with the Palestinians and have some kind of land swap that Israel will be allowed to annex some of the settlements and give in return land from Israel. Therefore, it is meaningful where the settlements are in terms of how devastating it is for a two-state solution for chances for peace. And what else do you count at Settlement Watch and Peace Now? You don't only count the number of settlements uh, constructed. You count the number of houses that were constructed. You count the number of housing starts. Why are those important? Give us a sense of the numbers on those as well. There are many indications to the policy of the government in terms of settlements. One is the population, and another is the construction. And where they're building, how much they're building, the government would have more control over amount of construction, or it's easier to control the amount of construction, and by that, to influence the number of people that will move there. You mean a sort of build it and they will come? Like if there yeah. are houses, people will be encouraged to come and buy them? Yes, I mean... The government cannot force people to move to a certain place. But if they build good infrastructure and they build big projects that will be sold in cheap prices, then it might be attractive for, for Israelis to move there. So if you want to look at the policy of the current government, you should look at things that the government is doing right now. And the move of a settler from Israel to the settlement is not necessarily an action by the government. However, an approval of a plan or a publishing of a tender, which is a call for proposals to, to build the project, this is an action of the government. And therefore, it is more in the control of the government. It's more political. It's more meaningful in terms of the political discourse. Right. So you're talking about uh, a sort of top-down and bottom-up process. People take the initiative to move there, but in large part because the government has developed plans for building homes there. Yeah. Okay. And another very important component for that is the construction of roads and infrastructure that will allow the development of the settlements. And we see that when, whenever there's good road, then people will move to live there. What is the significance of building those roads? Why are they important for understanding political changes on the ground? You know, the settlers are talking about bringing uh, one million settlers to the West Bank. 
But if they will all need to drive through a thin road and stand in traffic jams for the whole morning, it will not happen. But if they can commute to Israel, because almost half of the, or even more than half of the settlers commute to work in Israel, then if they have good roads, it would be more attractive to go there. And for that, Israel, and specifically this government, has put around 1 billion shekels now for a series of uh, bypass roads to enable better access to some areas in the West Bank for the settlers. What do you mean by bypass roads? I mean, couldn't somebody say, well, it's a good thing that they're building roads in the West Bank. Palestinians need roads too. What's the problem with that? Why, why do you call them bypass roads? The planning of those roads are from a settlement perspective. The roads that Israel is building are connecting between Israel and the settlements. It's not so much meant for the connection between Palestinian cities. So although some of those roads are also good for Palestinians, but some of them, they don't have anything to look for in those roads because they are leading to Israel and they are not allowed in Israel. So if they get on the road, they will be stopped by the checkpoint. And what about Palestinian land? When you build a road, what does that do to the amount of Palestinian land? That's something that has been written about by Settlement Watch. Of course, uh, there are several ways that the Israeli authorities can take over Palestinian land in the West Bank. And one way is by expropriating land for the public use. And mainly the public use that is allowed in occupied territories would be roads that you can tell or say that the roads are also for the Palestinians because it's occupation. And as occupiers, we are not allowed to expropriate land for the benefit of Israeli citizens, but we are supposed to only deal with the protected population, which is the Palestinians, then uh, expropriation or confiscation is only allowed for public use, and that's used for roads. For settlements, there are different ways of taking over lands, which is a little more complicated. Yes, and we have actually had a, another episode that deals specifically with the legal mechanisms for that. Let me ask you about, I'm just going back to when you discussed the reasons why people move to the settlements. You said some of them move for ideology, some of them move for quality of life. What about what Israel seems to claim, which is that the settlements are needed for security reasons? It's good for Israel to be on the land and have settlements because it's a matter of security uh, facing a hostile population of Palestinians. What about that? I think this excuse is invalid if you look on what does it do to the Israeli security forces. And it's not only me to say that, it's high-rank uh, generals in Israel that will explain. In order to protect civilians inside hostile territories, the army is obliged to deploy all around the settlements and the roads and protect them all the time. And it's a lot of work. I think it's, um, I, I don't remember by heart, there is a study by Molad organization about the security, but... Uh, We've got that in another episode too, but I want to hear your perspective on it. One may claim that maybe the control over the West Bank is for the security of Israel, which I would argue that it's wrong and it's not so, uh, so important for the security and the peace deal with the Palestinians and end of occupation will be much more good for the security of Israel. But the very existing of settlements, that's not, uh, not for the security at all. It's actually a burden 
on the security of Israel. Mm-hmm. I want to find out about some other ways that Israel has uh, made its presence felt in the West Bank, or not just felt, but has created a physical presence in the West Bank. Because, you know, the data that Settlement Watch has put together looks at settlements, looks at the infrastructure of roads around settlements, but you have a few other items in there. For example, agricultural areas, uh, dumping zones, closed military zones. What happens with that? Where is that land? How much is it? What does it mean for Israelis and Palestinians that there are other forms of using the land? One of the claims that the, the Israeli government often say is that the settlements only take around one to two percent of the land of the West Bank, so it's not a big problem. Right. However, although I think your data shows up to 9% <coughs> actually, um, it depends how do you count what do you count a settlement. Okay. If you're taking only the build-up area or the fenced area of a settlement, then it's around 2% of the West Bank. Okay. If you take the jurisdiction, what is legally considered part of a settlement, then it comes up to 9% of the West Bank. We should say legal by Israeli law. Of course, uh, all settlements are not legal according to international law, but according to the occupation laws that Israel applied, there are jurisdiction or municipal borders for every settlement, and they are in huge lands, 9% of the West Bank. If you add to that closed military zones, uh, we are getting to... I, I don't remember by heart, but uh, tens or dozens of, of percent of, of the West Bank, mainly in the Jordan Valley, that are considered closed military zones. What is a closed military zone? Um, it's a military order that declares an area for, that is not allowed for free access for people because it is needed for the military. And mainly what they do in those lands is uh, for the military exercises. And therefore, Palestinians are not allowed on those lands. But I think on top of all of this, you have Area C under Oslo Agreement, which was supposed to be temporary and divided the West Bank into areas A and B that are under some uh, control of uh, Palestinian Authority. And Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, under full Israeli control. And the policy of Israel in Area C is not to allow any development of Palestinians in Area C, meaning that if you want to have a permit to build a shack, not to say a, a house or uh, to expand your village, the policy in Israel is not to give you a permit. We're talking about in a decade, around 80 approvals in total in 60% of the West Bank for Palestinians. Eight zero permits for any kind of construction? Any kind of uh, construction in Area C of 60% of the West Bank. Where there are close to 300,000 Palestinians, is that correct? Uh, it's not so uh, easy to count. It depends how you count. Uh, I'm referring to the uh, OCHA, the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs yeah, uh, study. They are right, but, um, but Area C uh, includes the big areas where you have small communities that are under Area C, and they are uh, estimated to be around 150,000 maybe, while there are many villages that are Area B. However, Area B actually was uh, drawn on an aerial photo that took the houses that existed in 95 and said, this is your Area B. 
Now, if they want to expand or to build anything, they have to go a little out of the area B and it's actually the village. Uh, you, you won't see a difference between uh, the village, which is area B, and the outskirts of the village, which are area C. So and that's it, why there's some discrepancy of so numbers also. Is, in, in these areas, you, you have uh, another 100 uh-huh. or, or 150,000 Palestinians, but they are not allowed to build there. And by the way, in the same decade when Israel allowed for 80 permits for Palestinians in Area C, they built around 18,000 units for Israelis. Housing units. Yes, for, for, for settlements. Right. So how many new settlements have been constructed during that time in the last decade? The question about new settlements is important. But if you know we're talking politically, eventually the question of a two-state solution will be how many settlers would the right. government need to relocate right. in order to, to get to an agreement. So less important from how many dots you're taking them. However, it's very meaningful in terms of the situation on the ground. Uh, if you have another settlement, it means that you have you take in more land, you need a road to lead to it, and you need all the security measures mm-hmm that usually will include some kind of a buffer zone or some limitations on Palestinians to, to get closer to, to this land. In terms of new settlements, there is a phenomenon that while officially Israel is saying we're not building new settlements and, you know, after Oslo, we, we are going to peace. So it's not about building new settlements, but on the ground, we do set up new settlements and there are been done illegally according to the Israeli occupation laws and they are called outposts and it was uh, around 100 outposts were built during the 19s and beginning of the 2000s it started when Netanyahu was elected after Rabin was assassinated in 96 and this phenomena continued until 2005 when there was international pressure and legal pressure in Israel to to stop the establishment of uh, outposts. But it renewed again under Netanyahu in 2012. And we see, I think, uh, over 40 new outposts since 2012. And they are with uh, all the new kind of, of character. They are smaller in terms of how many people there are there but much larger in terms of how much land they take. There are actually agriculture farms where you have a family with a few youngsters, so you don't need to bring so many people and to build a huge infrastructure. But this family and, and youngsters will farm the land and mainly with bring sheep or cattle and will go out to the fields as uh, shepherds. And this way you take over more land, grazing land, And in some cases, they're also kicking out the Palestinian shepherds or Palestinian farmers from the surrounding areas. So it's big amount of land with small amount of people. And the government allows them to be established without enforcing the laws. So we have a bunch of dots that I'm, I'm trying to connect here. We have not so many new settlements established officially, but we have a bunch of outposts. We have, again, not so many new settlements established, but lots of housing starts and growth in plans for housing starts and population growth. 
One thing we didn't discuss, but you have mentioned in the reports of Settlement Watch is the construction of permanent infrastructure like the University Center and Ariel and cultural centers. What is the composite picture that you get of all this on the political level? Because I want to back up and talk about politics. Where do you think this is going in terms of politics? Is it leaving open a space for a two-state solution? Is any of this reversible or is it leading towards something else that we maybe can't define yet or maybe you can? Um, I think one of the biggest efforts of the settler movement and of the government was not only to bring as many people to, to the settlements, but also to normalize it and to make it part of Israel and to make it irreversible. And this would include also, for instance, uh, establishment of industrial zones. You know, many factories will go there and you have more movement uh, and more people. So it's all meant to normalize. And I think the peak for normalizing the settlements is annexation. That's to say it's part of Israel, period. And I think also the fact that the settlers started to, you know, to approach international community and to speak. And it's all part of, of trying to normalize and make it uh, more permanent and more legitimate as a settlement. And of course, a university is uh, another way to make it more permanent. It's very hard to undo the settlements, of course. However, I don't think we have any choice in terms of uh, the future for the two peoples here. There's either continued occupation, either under official annexation and apartheid or under occupation, which is supposed to be temporary, but actually de facto is a, an apartheid uh, regime, which is not, of course, not moral. And for me, as, as a Jew in the Jewish state, it is something that I cannot accept. And it's also a recipe for instability. If you control another people, you will get more and more violence. So it's either that or we withdraw from the West Bank, we stop the control over the Palestinians and let them build their own state. People who claim that we might go for one person, one vote in the land of Israel and to have one state, I think this is so hard or not realistic at all to believe that the Israeli Jews will allow for millions of Palestinians equal rights. And we see how hard it is uh, already in Israel. And not only in Israel. For the Arab minority to get uh, full rights and equality and to imagine that one day Israelis will say, oh, occupation didn't work, let's allow them all full rights. It's unrealistic. So it's, it's much more, I know it's, it's very hard, but it's much more realistic to get Israelis to, to give up on the land and, and to let the Palestinians, you know, be on the other side of, of the fence. I know it sounds depressing or less harmonic, but um, unfortunately, I think this is the, the road uh, that is more likely. And I believe also that as soon as there are two states, the borders between them will be very open. And maybe from there we will go, uh, I believe, very fast into a federative kind of, of uh, arrangement or something like that. And I want to add another thing. I believe the majority of the Israelis and the majority of the Palestinians can live together 
and support the idea of a two-state solutions. The polls also show that. And the obstacle today is that they don't believe it's possible anymore. And if you don't believe it's possible, then there's no need to work towards it or if you are despaired. So people look for, for either despaired. And is, for Israelis, we don't need to look for another solution because we are fine. Right. <laughs> Our life is are good. However, most Israelis don't want to control another people. Right. They're But just I mean, afraid. I, you know, I think the other answer or, or uh, argument that I hear against that is people who say, well, the Palestinians rejected various peace offers. Of course, they agreed on Oslo, but uh, the Camp David negotiations in the year 2000 and the negotiations with Ehud Olmert in 2008, and they did not agree with what was offered to them in terms of the Palestinian state. So some people say, well, they've lost their chance. And why should we even try for two states anymore? How would you answer that? First of all, it's not only a Palestinian interest, it's Israeli interest. You know, when Herzl went and asked for a, a Jewish state in the land of Israel, the world told him no at the beginning. So what? So that's it? So you keep, you, you're giving up? I don't want to give up on Israel because the alternative to peace agreement or to two states is apartheid regime that will not prevail. And it's destruction of Israel. So uh, we have no choice. And if you go into the story of the negotiations with the Palestinians and you look into the, what has been offered and what was rejected, you will see that eventually it is true that in Camp David, the Palestinians rejected the, uh, Barak's offer. But Barak himself, after Camp David, continued the talks and then gave them a whole a much better offer in Taba in 2001. And uh, the Taba conference ended not with a rejection of, uh, by the Palestinians, but with joint statements saying that the two sides are very close to an agreement or never been so close to an agreement, and that they promised that after elections in Israel, they will continue the negotiations. It, it stopped because of the political circumstances that we were two weeks before elections in Israel. And similar thing happened with Abbas and Olmert's negotiations, both of them say again and again, you cannot claim that we didn't agree. It was because of the political circumstances in Israel that Olmert actually resigned uh, because of uh, the accusation or he went corruption to accusation. a cor yeah. corruption accusation. So they stopped the right. talks. And if you only twice in the history talked about the final status. All the other talks were either on interim agreement or how to do the talks. So only twice did you sit and talk and then you give up. Okay, so you've, we've now talked about the politics of the state, but let's talk about one of the main uh, drivers of the settlement project over uh, the last few decades. One of the major drivers has been the religious settler movement and takes various forms. I mean, we don't have to go back into the entire history of Gush Emunim, but can you explain to us What is Gush Emunim? What is the current, uh, I would say, maybe incarnation that we call the Yesha Council? Um, and then there's the Jerusalem organization that, that Settlement Watch has also researched. Uh, in English, it translates roughly to towards the city of David. Who yeah. are these various groups and what do they stand for on the religious mm -hmm. settler level? There are some uh, religious Jews that see the establishment of the state of Israel as part of the whole process of redemption. And they are not so few. 
in terms of uh, Jewish population in Israel, there are not a lot. I mean, only the, the religious people in Israel are a minority, and the religious that think that Israel has holiness or is part of a redemption are even a minority in, within the religious minority. However, there are a few hundreds of thousands of religious people who say the following. The state of Israel is holy. It's part of redemption. In order for us to complete the redemption, Israel or the Jewish people need control all over the land of Israel. And the redemption is not complete if we are only taking part of the land. Therefore, immediately after 67, they were euphoric, like the redemption is moving forward. And we can be the pioneers to encourage it to come faster. And they went and settled and pushed forward to settle in the West Bank. And they are the ones that you will find deeper in the West Bank. Inside Hebron, for instance, there is a settlement in the, the city, which is considered a holy city also for, for Jews. And we should say that's right in the heart of, a, of the biggest or one of the biggest Palestinian cities. Yes. So right in the middle of an urban Palestinian population. Yeah. And, and around Nablus, around Ramallah, you will find them the, the more religiously motivated settlers. So their level of ideology is matched by something about their geographic location? In a way, you can describe it uh, geographically. In a way, of course, it's not one-to-one, uh, -one, but the deeper you go inside Palestinian areas, you are more ideologically motivated. Okay, and then tell us how that plays out in Jerusalem, because in yeah. Jerusalem, you write about a very interesting process of expanding on the religious narrative and history of Jerusalem, uh, certainly in parts of East Jerusalem and in the Old City, in order to bring a kind of open tourist attractions. Right. So it's playing on the religious themes. Yeah. In order to normalize this, explain how that works. You know, our conflict is a national conflict between two nations who see themselves part of this land and land belongs to them. And we have some religious aspects to this national conflict. And it's most strong as we go closer to Jerusalem. And the holiest place for the Jews in the world is Temple Mount. It's where our temple used to be before it was destroyed. And the same Temple Mount is for the Muslims, Haram Sharif, which is the third in holiness for the Muslim world. And it's a very central place for the Palestinian nationality. And some on both sides will try to use those religious emotions and to make them stronger in order to make it harder to give up on those uh, holy places. I just want to specify for people who don't know, those are the very same compound. It's a small compound within the old city of Jerusalem. Yeah, so uh, what happened in Jerusalem Unlike the West Bank that was not annexed in 67, the government in 67 annexed uh, 70 square kilometers around Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a symbol, it's our capital, and we want control over the old city and the surroundings in order to make it eternal. And what Israel did in order to make it eternal was to start to build settlements around those areas. And these are the big neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, Gilor, Amot, Neve Yaakov, things of a sort. 
So in the newly annexed parts that were understood, at least by the Palestinians, to have been locations that would be part of a future Palestinian state. Right. Is that correct? Yes. So that's one kind of settlement in Jerusalem. The second kind of settlement was developed in the 80s, where settlers say, we need to go in Palestinian neighborhoods and live there and to make it more Jewish so that if there are negotiations on two states and one of the central issues is Jerusalem and there should be a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, then if we can bring so many Jews to live in Palestinian neighborhoods, then it won't be possible for Israel to give up on those Palestinian neighborhoods. And that was the idea of the second kind of settlements inside Palestinian neighborhoods. But they put a lot of efforts. They got a lot of help from the government, but they managed to bring today around 3,000 Israelis to live inside Palestinian neighborhoods. This is not demographically, uh, you know, meaningful. It's meaningful, but Mm -hmm. it's not going to prevent Mm -hmm. uh, the Israeli public from giving it up. So what they went uh, was the the third kind of, of settlement was to say, If we cannot bring Israelis to live in the Palestinian neighborhoods, we can bring them to visit and to tour the sites and to make them more connected to those sites and to change the narrative in terms of what is so central and important for Israelis today in terms of Jerusalem. And the touristic settlement in Jerusalem has been developed dramatically in the last decade over one billion shekels that the government gave, actually it's almost a billion and a half already, for projects that are mainly in the Muslim Palestinian areas of surrounding the old city that are encouraging Israelis and tourists throughout the world to visit those sites. And those sites are mainly looked at from the Jewish angle. Can you give me an example? Of course, uh, the the flagship of this project is the City of David, which is Silwan. A Palestinian neighborhood. Palestinian neighborhood of Silwan. It is uh, where ancient Jerusalem started. So King David was there. I mean, if you believe that uh, David was, so he was there for sure. And uh, so it is the City of David. However, today... It's a Palestinian neighborhood of Silwan. So they managed to create a touristic site with a lot of fascinating archaeological findings that tells the story of the Jewish Jerusalem. And although they are not really, you know, denying other cultures that were in Jerusalem, but they are not putting them not in the front and not as part of the narrative that you get there. So actually, and, and you know, there is a quote of our previous mayor, uh, Nir Barkat, of, mayor of Jerusalem, who said that uh, we are working on this project, archaeologic project, that we reveal the road that led to the temple 2,000 years ago, and whoever will go through this pilgrimage road will know who is the landlord of this city. So basically making it very clear that this is a national project and yeah. or a nationalist project even. Yes, I think in all the world, archaeology plays a role, you know, national role. But in Jerusalem, Israel is claiming sovereignty. We're saying that it's ours, but we have responsibility. 
uh, if we are the sovereign, to make sure that we keep it for the three religions, heritage. And of course, it's a heritage of the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who live in Jerusalem. And unfortunately, Israel is not a good guard or a good keeper of those sites, and it's always trying to make them more and more Jewish. And with that, making the two-state solution harder because Israelis are now less ready to give up or to compromise over sites that maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it wasn't so hard. Right. And you mentioned also how much money is going into this, uh, not only into the, the billion and a half you mentioned in the Jerusalem projects, but also think about all that investment in the settlements in the West Bank uh, that you talked about, many of which I think in the data that I've read from the website about 70 or even 80% of the growth in the last decade has been in areas beyond either the security wall or the presumed border of a future Palestinian state. How much money goes into that? Where does the money come from? Which kinds of budget sources? Who's tracking it? It's not so easy to track how much Israel is putting in the West Bank. Every year, the Israeli Bureau of Statistics will give the data to the Americans uh, around 1 billion shekels a year to settlements. And they calculate, all, first of all, they don't calculate East Jerusalem. They only calculate things that has to do with construction, not the maintenance of, of a settlement. So if you build a road, if you build a school, if you build houses, what the government gave to the project, what... Um, we saw in the last two years is an increase, like it's about a billion and a half. So it's a dramatic increase in, in the amount of money that is going to the settlement. And does that include the cost of the army that is no. placed there to protect settlements? No, that's the big amount of money that Israel needs to, to put. But uh, for that, it's even harder to get, first of all, because security budgets are not uh, transparent and it's, it has to do with, uh, you know, secrets. And of course, if you believe that we can get to peace and that if we withdraw, we our security will be much better, then of course, the budgets for security will be less. It's not that we will dissolve the army and we'll not need to protect ourselves. But I think... A lot of, of what we're doing today, we could use for the development of Israel. Right. And we're talking, so I just want to review the numbers we're talking about based on the Israeli Central Bureau of Statistics. Between a billion and a billion and a half, just on the civilian infrastructure of the settlements, that's not even including an additional uh, a budget through the defense and uh, the defense establishment. So we're talking about billions, probably. Yeah. And, and it's Shekel. a yearly number. That's Annually. Okay. To wrap up, I want to find out what's going to happen tomorrow. Not that we, any of us will predict, but as the Trump plan is, has been released and it talks about possibly Israel annexing up to 30% of the West Bank and areas where the vast majority of settlements are located and Israel itself is moving ahead on some level with an annexation plan, you know, much of the Peace Now material and the Settlement Watch material, you know, describes the developments as uh Settlement growth within the borders of a future Palestinian state or with it, I should say, within the Israeli future borders, leaving open the borders of a future Palestinian state. And now we have this possibility that Israel may annex large swaths of the West Bank. Is it still relevant to count and track uh, the settlement growth in this way or 
are those borders no longer relevant? And if so, have the settlements won their political mission? I think one thing is that the settlements and the growth of settlements is always relevant to our conflict. And I think the terms of our conflict have not changed. It has many layers. We have the 48 layer. Um, however, the, the basic uh, solution is based on the 67 border. And therefore, whatever Israel is doing beyond the 67 border is relevant. And as Israel annexed part of Jerusalem, or 70 square kilometers, uh, to make it the eternal united Jerusalem, and still what Israel is building there is relevant and is um, it's on the table in terms of, of the talks, it will be also um, relevant after, God forbid, an, another annexation. However, I don't say that it doesn't change anything, the fact that there is annexation. I think it will make it much, much harder. And if the settlers won, I think they are winning a lot of battles, but I'm not sure that they can win, uh, you know, the whole war. I think eventually this cannot prevail. I mean, the, the, the ongoing occupation to continue to control directly or indirectly millions of Palestinians, it's not only wrong, but it's not stable. And Israel will have to, to, to stop it eventually. So t- when the settlers say we are, the settlements are not the obstacle to peace. They are wrong. <laughs> oh, of course. I mean, I think in, in one way they are not an obstacle because they will leave. I mean, eventually if there is a decision of the government to evict the settlers, the vast majority of the settlers, they will protest, they will try to stop it, but eventually they will leave like they did in other cases of evictions from Gaza and from Sinai. So they are not an obstacle. But of course they are an obstacle. Imagine there weren't any settlement today. And even when Rabin negotiated the, in Oslo, I, I'm sure he could have gone to the final status already. Uh, the only reason why it wasn't completed, I think, is because the, the price that Israel needs to pay now is eviction of thousands of Israelis, of settlers. Thank you to Chagit Ofran of Settlement Watch and Peace Now for being on the show. Thank you. And thank you also to the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, and thank you for listening. <laughs>